I got to meet Diablo Cody, the writer through Jonathan. And she said to me, if you could do anything you wanted, what would you do? And I said, well, I have this script I wrote. And if I could have anything in the world, I'd want to make it. And so she said, go make it. And I was like, easy for you to say, Oscar winning screenwriter. right? But she said it to me with such conviction that I was like, all right, you know what? I'll try or die trying. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Rebecca Eskries is on the show. Rebecca is a screenwriter, director, and producer who has screened at numerous international festivals, including South by Southwest, Toronto International Film Festival, Seattle International Film Festival, Dead Center, Savannah, Munich, and Stockholm, among others. Her feature film directorial debut, What Breaks the Ice, was selected for the Austin Film Society's Artist Intensive, hosted annually by Richard Linklater. Starring Madeline Klein, Sophia Hublitz, and Lucas Gage, all great actors, What Breaks the Ice is about two teenage girls from different worlds who form a deep and unlikely friendship in the sweltering summer heat of 1998. But their fun and carefree days quickly turn cold as they find themselves at the center of a mysterious murder. I saw this film with my youngest daughter, who is 20, and she knows great acting and storytelling when she sees it. So it was fun watching a film like this through her lens as the film wrestles with themes of trauma, loyalty, consent, and the moral ambiguities faced by teens in an era when, as Rebecca said during our chat, Teens were untethered to their parents and technology. What Breaks the Ice will be released on VOD on Friday, October 1st. So check it out this weekend. In this wide-ranging discussion, we talk about Rebecca's long journey into directing and the dues she paid to get there. We also talk about the amazing folks who mentored her along the way, like the Academy Award-winning director of Silence of the Lambs, the late Jonathan Demme. I have a feeling you're going to be seeing a lot more of Rebecca on the big screen and on television in upcoming projects, and it was fun hearing her story. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Rebecca Eskries. Rebecca Eskries, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I love the I love your podcast. I got to catch up on a couple episodes today, so it's great. Oh, really? Yeah. Which yeah, I loved it. Which ones were you listening to? Um, I listened to the most recent, um, the recap, and then, but also the interview you did with um, is his name Carson Mel? Oh, Carson Mel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really interesting guy. Some of our stallions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to see the film. Look, it sounds really interesting, and he seems like a really interesting person. So, yeah, good interview. Yeah, it, it's interesting to talk to people that are so used to being behind the scenes, and as a writer and being in the writers' room, just being sort of isolated from everything in front of the camera for so long, and then boom, he's not only directing, but he's acting in it, and you can tell that that's not probably his passion to be acting, but he just out of necessity did it to make that movie. But Rebecca, it was really fun to watch this movie with my daughter, who is 20 years old, my youngest daughter, because my lens of seeing uh, What Breaks the Ice is different than her lens, obviously. And her generational difference in terms of how she sees issues like consent and the friendship that developed between Emily and Sammy. It was just 
my daughter Isabel and I watching this movie, and we were chatting back and forth throughout the whole thing. And we just had different takes on, first of all, whether this was a period piece. I think we were trying to discern that for the first maybe 15 to 20 minutes, and then we concluded that it was. It was a lot of fun to watch this movie, but so much to unpack here. So why don't you start off by telling my listeners and me what you tried to accomplish with this screenplay in terms of themes and also bringing your own experiences into the film. Sure. I I love hearing that you watched it with your daughter. That's wonderful. So yeah, actually, um, I think a lot of filmmakers will embarrassingly say, or maybe I shouldn't be embarrassed that, you know, this film took a while to make. And um, I initially started the screenplay, believe it or not, in the summer of 2014 and put it away for a while and came back to it when uh, the time was right uh, about five years ago now. But um, initially, honestly, I started writing it after going to see um, a screening of Boyhood with Richard Linklater present. And I'm a huge fan of his work. And I was lucky enough to have him be involved in this project, actually, um, much later on. But I was blown away by that movie in so many ways. But I, it really, at the time, it was sort of a crossroads in my career. And I was thinking about um, how I was going to get my first film made and what I wanted that film to be. And so I actually, I had a couple of ideas I was thinking about writing. And it was not the first feature that I've written, but this is the first one that's produced, obviously. But I was thinking, well, if I were going to write a movie called Girlhood, what would it be about? Mm. And what would it be like? And so actually, I had also been... Andrea Arnold is one of my favorite filmmakers. And I had heard an interview with her where she said, if you don't know where to start, start with your characters. And so I just began with like conversations between these two friends. And, um, you know, obviously I've never murdered anybody. And if I did, I wouldn't (laughs) talk about it on this podcast. But, um, you know, I I spent most of my summers uh, from the age of like nine until I was 14 or 15 in sleepaway camp. And we used to, you know, when, when you don't have grownups around you, the things that girls will talk about is actually like both jarring and sophisticated at the same time and also completely naive. And I remembered I kept a really detailed journal of all of my summers and I'm still very close with a lot of the friends I made. And so this movie really began as like my memories of summertime with my friends and the things that we used to talk about and the things that we were curious about. And and that's really where the, the impetus of the movie began. And then as I started writing it, I started to think about what themes I wanted to explore. And, and I think that's why the period of the film is really important, which I can get into later. But I really wanted to make a movie where there were no good guys or bad guys. It was kind of just this morally ambiguous place. Um, and I think that that's also like being a teenager, you're, you're sort of living in a an ambiguous space. You're not a kid and you're not an adult and you're trying to figure things out. And so I really wanted to approach the three main characters as people who were, who were, um, had some good qualities and some bad qualities. And, and it kind of explored that, but from the lens of a teenager. I read the press kit on this film and it really got me thinking because I realized that there was a lot to it. There was, you know, the Monica Lewinsky reference and, you know, Bill Clinton. And the comment from the mother, which is funny because it's so spot on for that time, where she said, it is a woman's job to know better. And you're, you're like, oh man, this captures an era. I grew up in the 80s, and so I'm a little bit ahead of you. But in the 90s, I was still forming as an adult. And 
that is so true. The way we looked at the Monica Lewinsky scandal, that's if that's what you want to call it, I thought it was so appropriate to bring that in to really give a sense of what it would be like if these girls had revealed what truly happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to give anything away, but there was an importance to that scene, the Monica Lewinsky discussion at the dinner table, that was way beyond just showing that this was a period piece and that this took place during a specific time period. I think for me, what it did was inform what these girls could expect if they revealed certain things about their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely. Yeah. I love that scene. And I love Kathy in that scene. She's so jarringly like out of what feels so out of touch today. And yet at that time was <laughs> exactly what a mom like that would say. And, right. you know, when I came back to the film, like almost two and a half years later after I started it, it was in 2016. And I was thinking about, you know, we were all so excited about a woman running for president and that woman being Hillary Clinton. And it was so very fresh in my mind, just kind of how much had changed and yet had not changed in those 20 years or so since the movie takes place, right? And so on the one hand, you have this generation of girls who grow up with these very particular values. And then as they grow up, and I would say I'm part of that cohort of women who were like, wait a second, you know, we, we villainize these two women, right? This wife who didn't leave her husband and this basically kid who fell in love with the most powerful man in the world, right? Or whatever, or whatever she was seduced by him, right? Right. And, you know, we villainize the two of them. And not to say that, you know, anyone was completely innocent or guilty, which I think would sort of fit in with the theme of this film. But it was that, like, it wasn't about him. And he was kind of the one at the middle of this, you know, the president. Right. And so I think that there was, there was something about, and that was a big piece of, you know, to your point earlier about why we wanted to keep the period element very subtle, because it was sort of a way to say, well, how far have we come, you know, and how far have we not come in many, in many respects, you know, and I think there were still people who were villainizing Hillary even 20 years later. And here she is like running for president. Like how incredible is that? So without making it too political, you know, that scene we felt was like, what I love about the placement of that scene is up until then, you don't know if it's a period piece or not a period piece. And then it's suddenly like, oh, and I'm already in this story and invested in these characters. And that was a big piece of like the structure of this, of the way we ended up finally editing the film. Yeah. And also, I think the period is the great device of, like in your press kit, I think you talk about being untethered at camp and how our kids these days and younger generations will never know, literally, they will never know the experience of being untethered and sort of set loose in an environment like that, where there's clashes of classes, but there's sort of a great equalizer that occurs at camp or at a location like that where everybody goes to the same spot and nobody's better than anyone else, except for the fact that people know if you're a townie or a local, but they're all together. They're all untethered by technology, by parental supervision. And that device, number one for me really is sort of nostalgic. So it was fun to watch, but it also gives you freedom to tell a story that wouldn't really make sense in today's era. Yeah. That was, that was pretty cool. Thanks. Yeah, I really, we really enjoyed it. And um, a lot of the crew are, you know, people around my age and a lot of women. 
And we had a great time, like kind of in a way, like reliving our, our, you know, adolescence as we were making the film. So that was, and it was fun to sort of also like educate the, the actors about it because, you know, they're young <laughs> and like, yeah, they don't know, you know, they were, they don't know, like, these, these kids don't know what it's like to like not have a cell phone or like, you know, they're like, did people really talk this way? Or did people really do this or that? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this, this is actually based in reality, you know, but yeah, the, the untethered aspect, you know, I think it's even, it's like not to get all meta about it, but it's almost like the way we enjoy entertainment has changed so much. Like people would just go and sit and watch a movie and they wouldn't be like also texting and also watching something else. And, you know, that whole immersive experience in and of itself. But mm -hmm. that was also kind of the fun of making the movie was we didn't have to, it allows you the freedom to just think about people and how they interact with each other and not have to think about all these other things. Like, well, wouldn't someone call this one or wouldn't they have tracked them there? Or, mm -hmm. you know, like those things don't matter. It's about the characters and the story. Exactly. And I think the lake scenes where they're sitting on the docks and they're diving in the water, it's a good example of what is really not happening now uh, with technology. And I'm, I'm starting to sound like an old man, like a grandpa, but, but this is, <laughs> I think it's true that these younger generations just don't know what that experience is like. And they probably never will unless they go to a sleepaway camp where, you know, for instance, I sent my kids to meditation camp a couple years ago and they're still they still hate me for it, but they had to literally check their phones in, put it in a basket for a week yeah, and experience life without technology for a week. So unless they're forced to do that, they're not going to know what it's like, but it was fun to see that captured on screen. Another thing that I wanted you to comment on was, you know, I, I didn't pick up on it because I'm not, I'm not a film nerd in terms of like really picking up on the nuances of filmmaking, but I read in the press kit that you shot the scenes of the boys with handheld cameras and there was a purpose for that. Can you tell my listeners why you did that? Yeah. So um, that was a very deliberate choice. And the reason we did that is because we felt like that, I think handheld camera naturally creates a sense of either anxiety or momentum or disruption in some way. And also can a lot of people feel that it, it almost feels more authentic because none of us live our lives on a tripod. You know, we're always, mm -hmm. we are, a, we are our own handheld or steady cam or whatever it is, you know, that's how our eyes perceive the world. So, but I think for us, it really was this feeling of, we wanted that everything with the girls for the most part to feel, especially their conversations to feel like they were in their own bubble of a world, at least before the midpoint of the story where this where this event occurs that I don't want to necessarily give away how it happens. But although, you know, it's pretty early on in the movie, you know that a crime has been committed, but without going into the specifics. But the the point of the handheld camera with the boys was to show that like this is something that's disrupting their world and is exciting and it's it, it creates like almost this like kinetic energy in their lives because they're excited about it, mm -hmm. but it's also disruptive. And as you'll, as the movie progresses, especially for Sammy's character, you understand why. And so we wanted to create that feeling of unease and uncertainty and uncertainty for all of us, but especially with teenagers who are discovering their sexuality, it's, it's exciting and nerve wracking and anxiety inducing, and also like thrilling. And I think that that was something we really wanted to go for in those, in those scenes. Mm -hmm. 
it was a great exercise, I think, in capturing the ambiguity that teenagers live in, this this world of grays where they're becoming, they're still children, but they're exploring, they're curious, and they're taking risks. And there's just complicated things that are happening. And as a parent, it's horrifying to think that your kids are actually, they're all doing the same stuff. You know, they're all kind of going through the same stages and and risk-taking which is necessary, but it really captured that part of teenagehood really well in a fun era. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I didn't, sometimes it's, you don't want to admit as a filmmaker that sometimes people will pick up on things that you subconsciously were doing, but you might not realize you were doing in your storytelling. And one thing like, you know, my parents actually didn't read the script before we shot the movie. Um, I kept asking them if they wanted to, and they said that they didn't. So, oh, well. My mom watched the movie and the first thing that she, she saw like an early cut of it at, at a, you know, like a, t- a test screening we did. And she said the first her, and of course she's a mother. And she said, the first thing that I took away from watching this is no one was paying attention to these kids until it was too late. And I did consciously, like we did talk about that when we were shooting it. Like we really wanted this to be like from the perspective of the kids and like, not have the parents like it wasn't about the parents it really was about the kids and the world they live in and that was definitely obviously very intentional but like that was the first thing that my mom said when she finished the movie was the she reacted so strongly to the two mothers and like the way that 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 like the kind of the final sequence of the film is is structured Mm -hmm. how like these moms are just horrified by what they've missed and that is something that I think it's definitely a theme of the story, but I didn't realize that that would be the first thing that a mother might watch the movie. And that's the first thing that she would think, you know? Right. <laughs> so. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. Can you tell us about the logistics of putting together a movie like this? Because you attracted some great talent to the film. I mean, these are sought-after actors and actresses. They've been in a lot of great films and television series. And I know you mentioned Richard Linklater was connected in some way to this project, but how were you able logistically to put this all together, to get the funding and to put this team together and attract all of this talent? Um, It's definitely moving a mountain. I'm not going to lie. You know, uh, I think every filmmaker comes into the role in different ways. And the path I chose was I worked my way up like as a Hollywood assistant. And like, I really did that whole, like working as an assistant. And then I was a story editor and I worked at some very big, well-known production companies. And I was really fortunate to like, kind of build my reputation in that way, because I think when you're going out and trying to raise money for your first movie, and I'm not someone who's from a family in the industry or independently wealthy or anything like that, you know, I felt like the, my best pathway was going to be kind of like moonlighting as a writer while I was building my resume as a really like with a really strong background in in production and development. 
and kind of knowing how to navigate the system and understanding how movies get put together. And then I was very fortunate to be Jonathan Demme's assistant for uh, about two years on his last two films. I saw that. That's amazing. And I, I, I knowingly say that working for him changed my life in so many ways, because first of all, to sit next to a, a master director like that, I mean, and he was such a kind and generous person with his knowledge and with just his time. And he kind of took me under his wing. And I am like, I get a little like choked up about it. I'm so eternally grateful for that experience and to have known him. And I think that that was kind of the, the turning point for me. And not to, you know, be name droppy, but, you know, I got to meet Diablo Cody, the writer through Jonathan. And I was sort of at this crossroads in 2016, where I had started this particular screenplay. And I had just left my job with Jonathan. He was taking some time off. And I and I felt like it was time for me to move on. I would, I'd been an assistant for eight years after also going to graduate school for film at USC. So I was already in my early 30s. And I was like, I really want to get this show on the road. Because if I'm if I'm gonna do it, now's the time. And and anyway, I asked her to have coffee with me. And I was, and I and I said, and this is and this makes it sound easier than it was because making a movie is impossible, but I said to her, I'm like, I'm really at a crossroads. Like I've been doing that. I've been on this path in development, working for other people. I really want to get my first movie made. And she was like, if you could have, but I was also confused. I was like, should I try to go work in television? I, I'm, I'm sort of lost. And actually she said to me, if you could do anything you wanted, what would you do? And I said, well, I have this script I wrote and I know it needs another pass at least. But if I had, if I could have anything in the world, I'd want to make it. Mm. And so she said, Okay. So she goes, go make it. And I was like, easy for you to say Oscar winning screenwriter. right? But she said it to me with such conviction that I was like, all right, you know what? I'll, I'll try or, you know, die, die trying, you know, whatever. So, but through the next, um, over the course of the next two years, I was able to reconnect with a friend of mine who actually is my business partner on the film. She's also the production designer. And she and her husband had been experimenting with putting money in films. And they said, you know, we would like to be the first money for you, but we don't want to put our money in unless you can find other investors. Like, you know, this is, this has like, we can be a piece of your financing. We can't finance your movie, right. you know, but we believe in you and we believe in your abilities. Right. And so, you know, I think what ended up helping and they ended up being a, the first money, but a piece of over nearly 20 pieces of, of equity, which is how we put the film together. And that's not a secret if you see the credits of the film. Right. But what ended up helping me tremendously was I, I ended up winning a grant through the Austin Film Society. I lived in Austin for two years. I moved there to work for one of the founders of the South by Southwest Film Festival. And through winning this grant, I then got invited by Richard Linklater to attend a, a workshop that he does at his ranch. And it was there where I met where James Ponsold, who's another amazing director, came and worked with me on the square on the script and workshops and scenes. And that was really instrumental in helping us attract other investors. And then once we had enough money to just say, okay, we have some pieces of money, we very strategically started going out to to um talent agents and basically saying, like, hey, we're this is a we're trying to get this off the ground. And then from there, we we were working with a really wonderful casting director who has great relationships from working on much bigger stuff too. And that's how we kind of came to the rest of our of our actors, with the exception of Joel Allen, who I had met at that Richard Linklater um, workshop. And because he had been 
he had acted in another another film that had been at that workshop the year before a comedy called Never Going Back. And so he'd been invited to, to do a table read with us. And I thought he did a fantastic job. And I actually just offered him the role if he wanted to do it. And he was like, <laughs> yes. So that's how it came together. I mean, there's obviously many more pieces to it. We could yeah. be here for five hours talking about how movies get made. But I would say it was a combination of I, I worked my way up to gain the credibility from other people to believe in giving in belief to believe in me that I could execute on a film. Yeah. What a journey. It sounds like just a combination of knowing what you want to do, but putting in the time and paying your dues. I've looked at your filmography and your IMDb page, and you literally have done pretty much everything <laughs> that you can do on set, including directing now, a uh, feature film. But these connections that you made, did going to Barnard at Columbia or USC, did those experiences create a network for you that facilitated these other connections with like Linklater and, and Demi? Or how did that unfold? I, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, people will take every piece is important. I mean, I, my years at Barnard were incredible. I wasn't a film major, but I, I was a fine arts and uh, art history major and I minored in English and I read a lot. I read a lot of Shakespeare. And then I think going to USC, you know, you, le you learn a lot, you meet great people. I think what those things did facilitate was it, they helped me get my first film job. And I think that, you know, when you're the, the hardest job I think to get is your first one, because you're just a name in a pile of hundreds of resumes. And unless you get lucky, mm -hmm. it's just it's very hard to nail to land that first job. And I think that those experiences really helped me get my first job, which was as an assistant to two independent filmmakers who did both documentaries and narrative films. And that kind of helped me just kind of leapfrog to each job that I got subsequently. So I, I think, I think the best look, if you're fortunate, I'm incredibly fortunate for the education that I had because it, it created a great foundation for me as an artist and as a storyteller. And then I think those experiences open doors that continue to open other doors. But I certainly wasn't someone who like out of um, grad school, like I was actually freaking out. I was like, I need to get a job and just was applying everywhere and asking everyone I knew. And, and eventually something worked out and it really helped just kind of this domino effect that has taken place over the last 12 years. How important was noodling your short film in terms of building your resume? I watched it and it's a beautiful film. It's very, very, I mean. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you watched it. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. It's a really solid short. And, you know, I've seen a lot of short films over the years and I've, I've covered short fests and it's tough. It's really tough, I think, to make a short film that's watchable, frankly. But what was your goal in, in creating the short film? Was it a resume builder? Was it a passion project? Was it a combination of factors? Believe it or not, I would say noodling was one of the best investments I ever made in myself. Believe, uh, and I, I, so that film was my graduate thesis film uh, for USC. Oh, okay. And it was a short script I had written in one of my screenwriting seminars. And I just became completely obsessed with, with noodling because I'm from Great Neck in Long Island and no one does noodling there. And I was <laughs> like, this is, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And uh, I say it was one of the best investments I ever made in myself because I self-financed it. And I also had some grant money that I'd gotten from being a student teaching assistant at USC for two years. And so 
But actually, we used it as part of the pitch packet with our as a pitch package for our, this for what breaks the ice. And actually, one of our biggest investors came on board mm. because he loved the short. Really? And huh. yeah, and he was like, "I watched this film and I loved it." And yeah, and he was one of our bigger investors. And funny, and, and that's how I met my business partner Megan. So when she she I was a graduate student and she had just graduated from Clemson University and had moved to LA and was a fine arts major and was trying to make her way into a you know a career as a production designer which she is now and a very very talented one at that and I posted this thing online that I was looking for an art director for a, a another short film that I was production designing and I met her at Cafe 101 and I always tell this story she was like 22 years old and she came in in like a white lace top and I was like, this girl is going to be an art director. Okay, whatever. I like thought, I was like, but you know what? If she's really, if she's not good, I'll just, I'll find someone else. It's not a big deal. It was like a five day shoot. She showed up on set with like a power drill and just like, like no joke. Like just, I walk on, on the first day and she's already like taking stuff down and building things. And I was like, this girl's out of control. Yeah. And we've been friends ever since and worked on various projects together. I've even worked for her as a set deck. And then she is, she's my first, she's my partner on this movie. And we met doing noodling. She came to Oklahoma with me. She's like, my dad's a, a United Airlines captain. I fly for free. I'll come with you. Sure. Sounds like fun. Wow. And she was the art director on that. And yeah, we always say like, who knows where we'll go next. But so the, I, I, I feel like I, and I love that film, you know, it, yeah. I look back on it with like real, real love. Yeah. The, the, the main actress, and I, I forget her name, but she had so much charisma and the close-ups on her face and, and her eyes, you could see that she was just a, a star in the making. And you were able to capture a real sweetness and innocence with her and the way that story unfolded and the, the boy that she met and the relationship with her father. And it's such a short period of time that you'd accomplished so much. So well done on Noodling. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Madeline Perry, she's Awesome. And also another another connection to this film is uh, she and I are still really good friends. In fact, I was out in L.A. directing a music video and I stayed with her recently. She's acting. She's doing really well. And she actually was part of a proof of concept we did for this film. That was like the other visual component that we used to raise money. And that was also like other investors came on board because of that. So it all kind of it all snowballs together. And it's just, I think the, the takeaway though, is that, you know, things take a long time. You know, I did that film 10 years ago. So yeah, things take a long time. So I wanted to talk about music videos because I saw the only bricks video that you shot and another beautifully shot piece. Is that a, a side hustle for you? Or is this something that you want to continue doing? shooting music videos. I don't really know where music videos fit into a feature film director's career plans. Yeah, that was that was the first music video I've ever done. And I don't know either, actually. So that's why I wanted to do it. Mm. <laughs> because I figured who knows where this will lead. And if not, it was another experience, another creative experience, another, you know, another thing in my arsenal that I know how to do. I met a whole bunch of cool people that I worked with on that. And um, I love the band. I love their music. And so I just, I felt like I can only learn from doing this. And right. that had its own challenges, you know, shooting during COVID. It was a was certainly a challenge, but I think we did it very safely. And I'm really proud of it. Yeah. So I don't know where it fits in either, but um, I do all kinds of things to, you know, 
keep me keep me moving and keep me creative. I would imagine that your experience producing the Justin Timberlake concert film informed your approach to the music video. Yeah, well, you know, Jonathan, it was really interesting when he we, when we were in the early stages of that project happening, and I heard him in a meeting say, "We're going to make a music a, a concert film that's also a comedy." And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like it didn't compute to me. But then and he, but then when you watch the finished film, there's so much comedy in it, even though it's about the music mm-hmm. and just the, the interactions between the the band members and Justin with his band. And so I always kept that in the back of my mind of like comedy and music go together in so many ways. Mm-hmm. In, in, in a pop song, I think, you know, yeah. obviously not in a sappy, sad love song, but I think pop music lends itself to comedy. And so when I was pitching for this project, I, that was something that was for, forefront in my mind when we came up with the concept. It's interesting that you bring up comedy and how Jonathan Demi mentioned that comedy was part of the approach to the shoot. Because when I think of comedy, I think of charisma, like Jack Black, for instance. I mean, if I think of charisma, the first actor I think about is the person who can raise one eyebrow and make everybody laugh. Right. And when I was watching the concert film, I watched it last night, the Justin Timberlake uh, film, and I was in awe of how much charisma this guy has and how the, the crew of people that had followed him and toured with him for two years, magnetically attracted to him, not because they're starstruck, but because they love him. And then he gets up on stage and he can move one leg or shake his shoulders or kind of turn his head and completely unleash uh, applause and insanity in the audience. And I was like, this would be so fun, so fun to be participating in this. Even if you're not like a huge Justin Timberlake fan or a huge fan of that style of music, but just to capture that talent at the finale of his tour and to see how it all goes down. It must have been fascinating to be part of that project. Oh, that was like one of the highlights of my life was being involved in that in that film. And you know, there was it was the as Jonathan often said, he would say like the generosity of this band and and Justin in the way that they are with the crowd. It's um you don't have to like the music to really enjoy the film. And um Right. And I learned a lot about just generally, I mean, we shot that over, it was actually over three separate nights and then kind of compressed into an 80, an 88 minute film as an homage to Stop Making Sense, which is also 88 minutes long. Mm. But what was, and one of the coolest experiences I had there, which was also a great learning experience was I used to go with Jonathan and our editor and our producer to all of the, obviously to all the sound mixing and everything else. But we would talk about like, creating drama even with the way the music already sounded like for example like obviously the sound mixers that we that justin worked with are like the best on earth Mm -hmm. but jonathan had like this unique approach to it where he's like yes but it's not just a concert it's a movie and so like bringing out certain instruments at certain times depending on where the camera was Mm. it was fascinating i learned so much about like how you deal with sound as a director and how important it is, you know, even to accentuate certain things or to draw the, the viewer to certain characters on screen. And that's something that actually, because we have one sequence in particular in our film that has a lot of sound and a car crash and all kinds of other stuff where I thought a lot about that experience, even though it was not a music, a music concert film, it was a, a traditional narrative film. Yeah. I listened to it 
with Bose noise canceling headphones. And I'm so glad I did because it really felt like I was there. Uh, and I watched it on the big screen too on my larger television. And it just felt so exciting to be there. But I was wondering, did Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz inform either Jonathan's or your approach to this film? Because it, there's some obvious parallels with the end of the tour. And I don't know if touring will ever come back like it, it was in 2016. Oh, yeah. But, you know, with The Last Waltz, and I think it was called The Band, that in the 1970s, they had their last concert that he directed a film of. But was that part of the equation at all? Or was it a completely fresh approach to how to film this concert film? You know, I can't take any credit for anything that was purely creative on that movie. That's all Jonathan, but I was a fly on the wall for a lot of it and got to give my insight when it was asked for. But right. I think that the, the whole tradition of concert films informed this one in particular. And and I we talked a lot about Stop Making Sense. That was really the, and obviously that was Jonathan's movie, but Certainly. I mean, I think that what we, the response often was like that the way, like the, the evolution of the concert film and like, like, why do people go watch a movie about music, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the ending is one of my favorite parts of that movie because you see this whole thing get built. And then like, you realize that there's so much more going on beyond the, the musicians themselves right? and how it's like this whole traveling band of of artisans and electricians and like there's so many creative people that are involved in in making this one thing happen and then it's all dismantled and taken down and it moves on you know right what's next for you creatively um so i have a couple projects i'm working on right now i have a television pilot i wrote that i'm trying to get made very different from what breaks the ice it's a marriage story it's also a dramedy and then i've I'm, you know, I'm writing, you know, then you do the stuff that, that pays your bills, like writing TV movies and, you know, selling, you know, doing writer for hire jobs and meeting on various things like that. And then I actually, and I think I can talk about this, actually, I've been quite fortunate. I became friends with um, one of the great grandchildren of the Von Trapp family. And um, he and I are working together to develop also a series about his about his family, but not really like about the sound of music, but really like about his grandmother, his mother and him and sort of like their lineage as being connected to one of the, you know, his grandfather was one of the original Von Trapp family singers. Wow. And yeah, it's, it's been such a fun project. So I've spent a lot of this summer meeting with, with his family members and going to visit the, their family lodge in Vermont. And, and it's, I think what, what I've learned from it, and I think what I'm excited about with this one in particular is I think every family has a story of, well, let's put it this way. We all know the story of the sound of music and its message of hope. And I think as the generations have gone on, there's, there are different stories of hope that manifest themselves in different ways and are more, I think, are, are in tune with the struggles that we all face nowadays. You know, in the United States, we're lucky enough to at, hopefully never have to flee our country because of, you know, persecution or, you know, or there are people who have to, I don't want to, I don't want to say that this is the, you know, that everyone in America has like the most idyllic life. That's not the case. But what we've started to delve into is like, what, what are the issues that a, a family continues to deal with as the world changes around them? Yeah. In terms of advice for folks that want to do what you do, you've put in a hell of a lot of work and I don't think that there would be any real way to recreate 
the path that you took, <laughs> which was which unfolded very organically over the course of a long period of time. But just generally, what advice do you have for younger people who are trying to break into the business in terms of film school versus known film school, LA versus Atlanta versus Mid-America, television versus film? I don't even know if there's a huge distinction between those two mediums anymore. But that type of advice for maybe a classroom full of 18-year-olds. Well, I have, a, I have a couple. One is I feel very strongly about this. I say go to film school. And I would say, let me, let me rephrase that. Go to graduate film school if you can afford it. And if you can't, think twice because student loan debt is a huge problem in America when you take out those loans. It's not free money. Right. And that's not to say don't go to film school because USC was one of the most life-changing experiences of my life. The second thing I would say is however hard you think it's going to be, it's even harder and you make sacrifices. And I'm not shy also about saying that there were a lot of things I gave up so that I could be doing this. And whether it's your personal life, whether it's vacations, whether it's a stable income sometimes, you know, like it's a lot harder than you think it's going to be. Mm. And also that in your path, life is going to happen to you. You know, things happen along the way that you can't control. And, um, you know, even for me, my, my brother died while we were finishing our movie and I had to keep going. And that was really hard and having to, and, you know, sometimes people in the film industry are almost like, they're almost like allergic to real life. And so that's why they like swallow themselves in making film and TV, I think, because it's like, it's all encompassing and it's an escape and it's exhilarating and it's, there's nothing like it. It's complete magic when it's working and when you're, when you're doing it, but life happens in, in the middle of it. And, and I think that was something that I had to learn the hard way, you know, not everything can be about making your movie, but yeah, I think, and I think also just incredible amounts of patience. Um, and one big piece of advice that I received that I think was a good one was when you're starting out to try to find a job that's going to expose you to as much as possible and to really be working for people that are, even if you're just, and most of us start as assistants, where you're working with people that are making things. And so you get to see the process from start to finish and you start to see where you feel like you could belong. Mm, gosh, that's incredible. Thank you for that very thoughtful explanation of your perspective on how to, how to make it. Very sorry to hear about your brother. Oh, thank you. But you know what? Like I said, life happens and you learn something from it. And um, not that I wanted to learn that lesson, but thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, it's been a real pleasure to hear your story. Looking forward to seeing the response to this film. It is a lot of fun. It's a great thriller. And I hope listeners will go out and see it. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>